Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. There's no doubt limiting screen time for kids has gone out the window in the shift to remote learning in this pandemic. But there are activities to give your children a break from computers. Coming up, we'll hear from Our Farm in Bloomfield about its 4-H program for children. Also, fall may be the season for apple picking and hay rides, but in the town of Weathersfield, residents can tour one of its historic homes open this month for the first time. We'll hear from the Webb Dean Stevens Museum in Weathersfield about the Butthoff Williams House and its interesting connection to a Newbery Medal-winning book you may have read in school. First, the Connecticut Historical Society and the local Mexican community have invited residents to join in a unique program to celebrate Dia de los Muertos, or Day of the Dead, that starts later this month. Joining me now on Zoom is Carlos Hernandez Chavez, an artist, musician, and educator from Connecticut. Carlos, welcome to our show. Thank you. Good morning. Also with us is Kate Schramm. She's director of the Connecticut Cultural Heritage Arts Program at the Connecticut Historical Society in Hartford. Kate, welcome to where we live. Thank you. You can also join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Carlos, tell us more about Day of the Dead and how it's celebrated. I was thinking about uh, in the last few years, it has become maybe more mainstream, more well-known because of that that Pixar movie, uh, Coco. But tell us more about Day of the Dead. Well, um, the Day of the Dead uh, goes back to pre-Hispanic times in Mexico. Uh, it was celebrated uh, around uh, the, the end of uh, harvest and um, <clears throat> where uh, people would uh, go to their grave sites of their uh, dead relatives to celebrate their their uh, their life. Um, it was believed that the, the dead would come that uh, during those days to, to visit with the relatives. Uh, the relatives would uh, tidy up their their grave sites with flowers and with fruits of the season and uh, and with food uh, that the departed uh, enjoyed. Um, fast forward to today, uh, it is celebrated just about everywhere in Mexico. Uh, uh, it, it caught on so tremendously uh, with parades and concerts and festivals and all kinds of things. But uh, when I was growing up um, in Mexico, few decades ago, <laughs> um, um, this uh, we used to go to the cemetery, you know, to to see, you know, the the, the scene, you know, and it was just wonderful to see the families gathering around the the, the, the grave sites, and uh, like having a a, a picnic, but in a very solemn kind of way, not not sad or anything, but just kind of celebrating our family. And with food, and see them tidying up their, their, their grave sites and bringing lots of flowers. And at night, it's just incredibly uh, wonderful to see the whole um, cemetery uh, alight uh, with with candles. Um, 
And right outside the cemeteries, there's a celebration, a huge party going on with vendors and performances and um, you name it. You would never thought, uh, think that uh, that uh, it was uh, anything about death. But um, it turns out that uh, Mexicans celebrate death as, as, uh, as a way of celebrating life. Mm. Um, it really is an honor to life. Um, Tell nowadays, me, Carlos, Carlos, yeah, when we think about the Mexican community living here in Connecticut, how uh, Mexicans celebrate uh, Day of the Dead, um, obviously there are altars put up in their homes. But when I think about parades and celebrations, uh, tell us, because you have lived in Connecticut now uh, for a couple of decades, uh, tell us what how it's been celebrated. Yes, uh, I was going to segue into, <clears throat> pardon me, segue into the altars uh, or ofrendas, so mm -hmm. we call them. Yes. Um, people in their homes um, uh, build what we call an ofrenda or an offering or altar, as people know it, pretty much with the same spirit, uh, decorating it with uh, the uh, photographs and uh, mementos of the, of, the, of the people they are honoring, including pets, by the way. You know, it doesn't have to be just persons. Um, mm. And uh, uh, with the same spirit, you know, with uh, bringing flowers and, uh, and decorations and uh, objects, uh, sugar skulls, which are tremendously uh, traditional, uh, and papel picado, which is really uh, cut paper with all kinds of beautiful decorations, very intricate de decorations, um, candles and, and what have you. And uh, we, we uh, in uh, Mexican communities, uh, are, are, have continued to do that, tra uh, to perform a tradition over the years. Uh, we, hadn't, we hadn't seen that happening because uh, we have not seen uh, the, uh, the the Mexican community more uh, uh, as visible as it is today. Uh, when I came here 53 years ago, there were no Mexicans, mm. so it was kind of hard to celebrate something with nobody uh, that understood that. But uh, so, soon uh, it started to to crop up here and there, and uh, now it's becoming a, a pretty popular uh, celebration. Uh, and, uh, and and you're right. I think with the uh, with the movie, the Coco, you know, it's pretty Hollywood, and uh, as we know, uh, but uh, they capture the essence of what what the celebration is. And uh, mm -hmm. I think it's uh, it served as a as an education tool for uh, for people who have absolutely no idea what mm -hmm. the, the dead is about. Carlos, um, you said you moved here 53 years ago. So tell us about the Mexican population in Connecticut today. Do we have uh, accurate numbers and what parts of the state uh, you see um, families uh, living? I think Kate uh, quoted in the 57,000. I'm not sure if that's a, a mm -hmm. number, but um, uh, the Mexican community, the Mexican, uh, yeah, the Mexican community is the second largest Hispanic uh, population in the state. One would never know. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is, uh, the, of course, the first being uh, Puerto Rican, uh, the Puerto Rican population. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we, we're, we're growing. We're growing in numbers uh, little by little. And we're taking some strides in uh, having people understand, you know, that we're here just like other people's uh, uh, immigrant families have, mm -hmm. have established residence here. 
You're hearing Carlos Hernandez Chavez, an artist, musician, and educator from Connecticut. We're talking about a partnership with the local Mexican-American community and the Connecticut Historical Society. Carlos mentioned Kate. Kate Kate Schramm is here, who's director of the Connecticut Cultural Heritage Arts Program. So, Kate, tell us about this partnership and what is this particular event that you're doing, uh, again, with the Mexican community? Sure. Excuse me. So a couple of years ago, um, the Connecticut Cultural Heritage Arts Program is the state's folk and traditional arts initiative that's based at the uh, CHS. And uh, the the program has a long relationship with with Carlos and also other members of the um, Mexican community in Connecticut, um, as well as the Mariachi Academy of New England, um, which is a fantastic organization. Um, and we were all kind of together in a room and, and Carlos and Adam Romo, who's the director of the Mariachi Academy said, well, why don't we do something for Day of the Dead? And so in 2018, we put together this small event that was mostly supposed to be educational. It was family friendly. There were arts and crafts and music. And we expected like, well, maybe maybe a hundred people would come. Um, if we put a party on the, for people to come and we had over 400 people show up and that was when we realized, wow, there's something here. People want to know more. Um, people are, are wanting to engage with this tradition. We, we did another big event last year, but this year a big event just isn't possible. It's not responsible. Um, mm. We're all like trying to figure out what to do with COVID, but we wanted some kind of continuity. And so we said, well, one of the ways last year that people really were able to engage and participate in the tradition of Day of the Dead was to leave messages and photos on a community ofrenda um, that we had set up. And so this year we said, well, why don't we give everybody the opportunity to participate in a community ofrenda? We'll create an online portal where people can donate uh, images or or videos or messages talking about their traditions, um, and then we'll all then we'll then we'll use those things to create a physical, real life ofrenda outside mm-hmm. at the CHS. That then people, if they want to come all the way to Hartford to visit that ofrenda and interact with it or leave a physical message there, they can do that. Or if they can't make that trip all the way to Hartford, we're going to make a video of the ofrenda. We're going to feature performances, socially distanced, of course, by members of the Mariachi Academy of New England. And we're gonna release that as a tribute video on November the 2nd in the evening, which is the final day of, of the mm-hmm. Day of the Dead. And we will have a link on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live for listeners to learn more about how they can contribute to this virtual and uh, outdoor ofrenda. Uh, Kate, uh, I, Carlos, I wanted to go back to you because uh, we know we're in this pandemic and the virtual ofrenda will be an important uh, part of this uh, because we can't gather like we used to. But I'm, I'm also thinking about the this past year and how uh, COVID has disproportionately impacted people of color, including the Latino community. Uh, Tell us how um, the community will be thinking about uh, COVID and its impact on uh, so many families around our country and and our state. Well, it's it's hard to to, uh, guess what they're thinking. Uh, And the people that I have spoken with uh, are pretty, uh, uh, particular uh, about being safe. 
Um, it is unfortunate that it is not all across the board and there are people who are just um, reckless, to say the least, uh, and don't understand the seriousness of this, of this pandemic. Uh, but uh, the Mexican families, you know, are very closely knit and, uh, and they look after each other and, and they call each other on things that they need to call each other on. Um, and uh, so in that way, I think that they are, they are uh, very aware and very uh, uh, appropriately taking care, of the, taking care of what they need to take care of to be safe. So um, I'm not sure what else I can add on that, um, but uh, I, I know that they, that they care to be safe. Hmm. Kate, uh, this is an interesting partnership again with the, the Mexican community, but how else is the Connecticut Historical Society working to create programs that recognize all of our state's diverse communities? Oh, that's a great question, Lucy. Um, the, the Connecticut Historical Society is really committed not only to where Connecticut has been in the past, but also where Connecticut is now. Um, everyone who has, is part of this state, whether, um, whether you're uh, indigenous and your roots go back here um, permanently, or if you are, you've been here for 12 generations, your family has, or if you've only recently arrived, that makes you part of Connecticut's story. And um, the CHS is very, very committed to working with a, a whole host of different cultural communities to tell their stories right now. Um, our education staff work very hard to create programs that are uh, sensitive to lots of different uh, cultural backgrounds. And of course, my program is always working with uh, a whole host of different communities to not only put together programs, but also to document um, and add to the archive that we have at the CHS of what's actually happening in Connecticut right now. Mm. And Carlos, uh, before we uh, go to break, uh, for people who are interested in uh, this virtual ofrenda, uh, when is the, the deadline for people to submit photos and notes that will be used uh, to create uh, both uh, the virtual and uh, outdoor ofrenda? Well, uh, the deadline has been set for the 16th of this month, uh, which, is, which is next Friday. Um, in order for the videographer uh, to... Uh, shoot the whole the whole friend and we try to have as many uh submissions included so that people can have their 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 say in in the ofrenda so the 16th is the is the deadline to submit uh items photographs and whatever else they want to submit including videos and and uh, recordings and carlos i mentioned that you are an artist so you'll be helping create uh, the the physical memorial Yes, uh, as a matter of fact, <laughs> it's going to be pretty, pretty big, uh, friend. And I'm, I'm happy for that because you have, to, if you were to see what is made, what is made in Mexican uh, celebrations, you won't believe it. I mean, there's almost like uh, buildings that uh, are three, four stories or, or higher in, in size. Mm. And again, this will be outside the Connecticut Historical Society. Yes, it will be in the gardens uh, right across the, the main entrance. And there's going to be other displays uh, complementing the, the ofrenda um, that celebrate the, the, uh, the Day of the Dead. Mm. 
Mm. Well, I can't wait to see it. I want to thank uh, Carlos Hernandez Chavez, again, an artist, musician, and educator here in Connecticut, and Kate Schramm, director of the uh, Historical Arts Program at the Connecticut Historical Society in Hartford. Thank you both for talking about this unique program. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, have you read The Witch of Blackbird Pond? It's a Newbery Medal-winning book with an interesting connection to the town of Weathersfield. We'll talk more about that after the break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There are so many historic homes managed by Connecticut landmarks that residents can visit. And for this month, one of them has opened for the first time. Joining us now on Zoom is Katie Sullivan, a staff member at the Webb Dean Stevens Museum in Weathersfield, Connecticut. Katie, welcome to our show. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you for having me. Now, I understand the museum manages the Butoff Williams House. And so tell us about this historic home and why you're opening it now. Well, the Butterf Williams House is um, a home that was built in 1711. It's a very medieval looking home, much different than what you'd picture the other historic homes in Old Weathersfield. And um, it was the setting that the author Elizabeth George Spear had in mind when she wrote her book, uh, The Witch of Blackbird Pond. So the tour, we're going to be talking about the book and the themes behind it, um, prejudice, superstition, and it links into the fact that there were actually witch trials and executions Mm. in Weathersfield. So tell me more about Elizabeth George Spear. I remember reading this book when I was younger. I was growing up in Pennsylvania. I never knew I'd be living in Connecticut uh, one day. But tell us about this author and how she used this house and uh, areas around Weathersfield in her historical novel. Well, she was a teacher. She lived here and visited the house. And I think it kind of spurred her um, as as a good setting, you know, for the story that she had in mind. And uh, she did win the Newbery Prize in 1959 for writing this book. I actually got it as a young girl, too. It was a gift <laughs> from a family member because she knew I lived in Wethersfield. So for listeners who haven't read this book, can you, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, it was... Um, it's a story about a young girl who is born and living in Barbados with her and her grandfather is her guardian. He dies and she has no one there in Barbados. So she takes it upon herself to come to Weathersfield where her mother's sister lives, uh, but she arrives unannounced and she's just different from everyone else. Uh, she arrives in this Puritan family with 11, 12 boxes of clothes fancy clothes and that of course sets them off right away is <laughs> she's very different um she can read she can swim a lot of things that were just unusual and um because she's different she's uh, kind of you know set apart and then eventually persecuted and accused of being a witch uh, you mentioned uh, the connections uh, to uh, witch trials here in Connecticut. I, I mentioned this is a historical novel. Just the other day, we had state historian Walt Woodward on, who told us between 1647 and 1663, Connecticut was the fiercest prosecutor of witches before John Winthrop, who later became governor, put an end to this practice. So talk about um, our witch history, uh, Katie, and how you'll be incorporating that into this tour. 
Well, we had nine cases of uh, people that were accused of witchcraft. Um, interestingly enough, we had men accused of witchcraft as well. People usually just think of women, but um, we did have men as well. And there were three people executed that lived in Wethersfield. Um, the first one was a woman named Mary Johnson, and her case is interesting because she actually confessed. Uh, so we don't know what kind of pressure was being put on her, but uh, she was originally someone that had been charged with theft. She was um, not a wealthy person. She was a poorer person in town. So, you know, someone that was looked down on. And uh, she eventually confessed um, to, you know, causing illness and and being a spectral image and dancing with the devil and all these kind of things. So she was uh, the first person from Wethersfield that was executed. Uh, but the other two that were executed were actually a husband and wife, John and Joan Carrington. And um, she kind of, she accused, <laughs> she said things about him and then that came, turned around and came back on her. And so she was executed as well. Um, one of the last ones, well, the last one here in Wethersfield, and one of the last ones in the state of Connecticut was Katherine Harrison. And her um, her case is very interesting. She was married to a wealthy man in town. He died and left everything to her and her daughters, which was kind of frowned upon at the time. And that, you know, the, the community didn't like that at all. So she gets accused of breaking the Sabbath, of black magic, fortune telling, and she's arrested and found guilty, but the magistrate had some questions um, about some of the points in the case. And um, Gershom Boakley, who was a minister here in Wethersfield and who is actually one of the actual historic figures in the mm -hmm. Witch of Blackbird Pond, um, he helps to develop new evidence, uh, new methods of um, evidence collection so that it really kind of starts to put an end to these trials. He, it is now required to have two witnesses that saw someone floating around in the sky and can describe exactly what they saw and uh, things like that. So it made it more difficult for people to um, accuse people of being a witch. Mm, that's really interesting. Katie Sullivan, again, is with us here on Where We Live, a staff member at the Webb Dean Stevens Museum in Wethersfield, Connecticut, as we're talking about uh, the museum, which manages this historic uh, house in Wethersfield, the Butoff Williams House, and how it'll be open for tours uh, this month. When people come to visit Wethersfield, do they often ask you about the Connecticut's uh, witch history, uh, Katie? Or is this something that uh -huh. people know? <laughs> Well, probably more in October than they do any <laughs> other times. But, um, we, you know, we do mention it when we take people to the houses. Um, and, and it is an interesting part of our history here in Wethersfield. Not a proud part, but an interesting part. Mm. So tell me more about the tour, because I, I know that it'll also be encompassing um, some other landmarks and, and properties in Wethersfield that Elizabeth George Spear um, also used as an influence in her book, The Witch of Blackbird Pond. Well, um, we... We would be setting off from the uh, Webb Dean Stevens Museum, walking over to the houses. Um, I think the thing that you're referring to is there is a map <clears throat> that was created by Phil Lohman, who's an artist, and he's also an employee of the Webb Dean Stevens Museum. And on that map, he has he's drawn it as if it were the time that the book was set in. So many of the places that are mentioned in the book are found on the map. So people can take that map and kind of do a self-guided tour um, of, of around the area. And that map's available at the Webb Dean Stevens Museum. 
Mm. I know we're focusing on the Butoff Williams house, but I should ask you, Katie, a little bit about the museum, uh, where you work and the history there. Oh, well, it's very exciting. Um, <laughs> uh, probably our claim to fame is that George Washington uh, met with the Count de Rochambeau at the Webb House in 1781. And um, they began to plot battle strategy there that would eventually lead to the Battle of Yorktown. And uh, the room he stayed in has been preserved. So when you go there and walk in the door, it's going to be, you'll see the same wallpaper on the walls that was there when Washington was there. So that's very exciting. But we also own two other houses. So there's the Silas Dean House. And Silas Dean, uh, if people don't realize, was our first diplomat to Paris. So he has an interesting story all of his own. And we have the um, Isaac Stevens house. And that doesn't have a historic significance um, the way the other two houses do. But it gives us an opportunity to show people how, how people were living, the average family was living in the 18th century and um, in Connecticut, 18th and 19th. How challenging has it been to operate during the pandemic, Katie, when we think about coming into these older homes and social distancing and being able to still keep the community engaged in these properties? It has been a challenge. Um, Earlier on, we've been doing a lot with our social media. So um, we have a fun program that where our curator has been going through the alphabet and giving us a different item for each letter of the alphabet. So that's on our Facebook page and that's kind of fun. But um, now we are open again, but we're limiting the numbers of people that can come through the houses. And we've kind of reimagined the tour so that we are taking a safe route through the three houses and not backtracking. Um, and we have sanitizer in all the houses. So, you know, we, we think we're doing a good job. People, of course, have to wear their masks. And um, and we think we're doing a good job of keeping people safe. There are a few rooms that we're not showing now. So we're hoping people that come on the tour now will visit us again and be able to see everything. So tell us more about for our listeners who are interested in, in signing up for this, uh, the Witch of Blackbird Pond and, and the tour of the Butoff Williams House. Are there still uh, openings, Katie? There are openings, but it's been very popular. So we've actually extended it through November 15th. So uh, people can call uh, Cindy Riccio at the museum. Um, did you want me to give the number? Sure, if you, if you have it right. handy. Yep, it's 860-529-529. 0612 extension 12 um, or you can go to our social media Facebook or our website or Instagram and you'll find all of the information there and we um, we are limiting the tours because of um, of the number of people but also we we have certain times where so that we can skip an hour between tours so on uh, Wednesday through Saturday it would be uh, 10 12 and 2 and on Sunday it's 1 and 3 and we don't have any tours the weekend of the 17th and 18th because we have other program that weekend. Mm. I want to thank Katie Sullivan for joining us, a staff member at the Webb Dean Stevens Museum in Wethersfield, Connecticut. We also have a link on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live for our listeners uh, if they'd like to know more. I know, Katie, I love to visit all of the historic homes and properties around our state. I need to get to your museum, so I hope to meet well, you someday. Well, we would <laughs> love to have you come. We would love to have you come. 
Thank you, Katie. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we're going to learn how Our Farm in Bloomfield is helping children learn new skills following the 4-H tradition. Now, it's Connecticut Public Radio's fall fundraising campaign. If you enjoy learning about our state and hearing from Connecticut residents on where we live, please support this program and WMPR with a pledge. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In a year of unexpected events, where we live is shaking things up a bit. We're searching for a new theme song. We're looking for an artist that can work with our team to create a new theme song for the show. If you're interested, we'd love to hear from Connecticut artists and musicians. You can visit WMPR.org slash where we live to learn more. Now, there's no doubt limiting screen time for kids has gone out the window in the shift to remote learning in the pandemic, but there are activities to keep your children engaged and away from computers. Joining us now on Zoom is Erica Fern. She's executive director of the Our Farm in Bloomfield. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Lucy. So tell us more about the about the Our Farm and the educational center you have there. Well, the 4-H Education Center has been around since uh, 19, in the 1970s. It's a 120-acre farm that is a public place. It's a place where anyone can come visit, engage in farm life and nature, and have a typical experience of being on a farm. We also host a number of school programs, and our biggest connection is with our 4-H club and our 4-H community at the farm. Tell us more about 4-H and what it stands for and how this program has really evolved uh, through the years. Well, the 4-H is a a four-leaf clover, and the H's stand for Head, Heart, Hands, and Health. And the 4-H program has has a long history with the land-grant colleges and cooperative education across the country. So we have a strong relationship with the University of Connecticut College of Agriculture, Health and Natural Resources. And it's through them that we are able to have a 4-H program and host it at our farm. So 4-H is at the local club level. Your town may have a 4-H club. The state, the national level, and also around the world you'll find it. So there's a lot of opportunities to be involved in different levels of 4-H. I understand Um, the Our Farm has a 4-H club uh, that's meeting uh, in October uh, for kids. So tell me me more about what kids will be learning and the activities on the farm. We have some great activities. We had in the past year uh, 40 4-Hers. We're up to 56 people interested in 4-H. So 4-H at Our Farm is learning by doing. So the children will learn to work with the different types of animals we have on the farm, from chickens, goats, sheep, alpacas, donkeys. They they learn how to handle them. They learn how to work with the animals, respect the animals, how to take care of them. So that is hands-on. We also do a lot of things out in our gardens. We have a nurturing garden where the children have harvested lavender and then it has been dried and then they've harvested the lavender seeds and flower buds off the plants. So we can use those in little lavender sacks that we'll be producing. They've been out on our hiking trails. 
they've been coming at as volunteers during the week. They are either feeding the animals, um, cleaning up after the animals, brushing the animals, or picking up tree branches that fell in the storm. So there's a wide range of mm. hands-on activities that our 4-Hers are doing. Now, I understand that you did 4-H uh, when you were younger. Why is this type of activity, this club, so important today? Being outside, I believe, is very important. I have a huge passion for 4-H, having grown up on it. And being a very shy child, uh, 4-H was my outlet. It really allowed me to develop my strengths. You don't need a fancy animal to be in 4-H. Um, you learn that if you don't have the best of something, you make do and you can still succeed and thrive by making do. So you learn by doing, you build your skills and you just keep exceeding. With the COVID environment we're in, we are seeing a lot of children with more screen time than ever. Mm. And just being able to get outside, um, be on the farm, touch nature, release their brain from the stress. This is stressful on our families. Um, and it's, it's going through our communities, this stress. And just to be able to be on the farm alleviates that. Mm. Um, working with the animals alleviates that stress. And that's really important for, for children and even adults today mm. is to be outside and get involved. And programs like 4-H allow that. You're hearing Erica Fern here on Where We Live, Executive Director of the 4-H Education Center at Our Farm in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Erica, tell me more about the children you're serving. Uh, when we think about uh, farming and raising uh, livestock, you might think that this is uh, for uh, children who live out in the country, who have uh, property, uh, their family has property to raise animals. But I'm curious about the kids in Connecticut that you're serving. Well, we're very fortunate because this farm is for everyone. It's spelled A-U-E-R, our farm, mm -hmm. but it's really O-U-R. It is all of our farm. And that's because we had a very generous gift from the Koopman and Shiro families years ago that wanted to make sure that all children, no matter where they're from, had an opportunity to come out at the farm and just enjoy it, just be there. That's really interesting. So you mentioned this 4-H program here in uh, this month and you're at capacity. And so I'm just wondering uh, in terms of the, the number of parents and families, are you hearing from a lot of people that, that want their children to get this aspect uh, in their education given the times we're in? It is very important. We're hearing from many, many parents. We actually have an after-school program because our summer camp parents wanted their children to be on the farm two days a week during the school year. So we have an after-school program, Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays and Thursdays. We have a pre-K program on Wednesday mornings. And we're following all of the requirements by the Connecticut Department of Early Childhood Education to make sure that our students and our teachers are social distancing, we're wearing masks, we're doing everything to keep children safe. We're maintaining small groups and that's carrying over into our 4-H program. So while we have 56 students interested, we're gonna be spread out. We're outside, there's 120 acres. We have plenty of room to socially distance, keep people safe and yet give them the outlet 
that they're looking for, where they can be outside engaging with our animals, engaging with nature, being in our gardens, watching the pollinators in the nurturing garden. That's all really important. I like the emphasis on on growing uh, plants and and taking care of animals. I was thinking about our two apple trees that we have. It's been a rough year, <laughs> Erica, with the drought. And if you don't know about uh, raising apple trees and um, certain things that you can apply to them that may be organic but will keep uh, certain pests away, you don't get a good bumper crop <laughs> come uh, October. And so I wanted you to walk through some of the the, the lessons that you're teaching uh, children when it comes to, to growing uh, their own food? We have some gardening and nutrition programs at the farm um, that is part of the 4-H program. We also have the University of Connecticut Master Gardener program that has the food share garden. And our 4-Hers will help in the food share garden with the master gardeners. Not only do, again, 4-Hs learn by doing, so they're learning by doing, and they help weed the garden, harvest the garden, and then the master gardener volunteers take that produce twice a week over to food share. Mm. We're also learning, we do have an apple orchard, and like your trees, our trees suffered this year because of the drought. Um, at one time, the 4-Hers operated the orchard and the cider business. Um, it was a year-round business that they that they operated on the farm. And over the years, the, the orchard has uh, become overgrown and has been needed some attention and tender love and care. And it's getting that now. And hopefully in the future, we'll be able to develop the orchard and the 4-H program again in combination and have some more production out of there mm -hmm. and teaching the children on how to maintain those trees um, and keep them healthy. <laughs> I need to sign up, Erica. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like that you talked about this partnership with FoodShare uh, because we know in the pandemic uh, where people have lost their jobs, where uh, they're depending on organizations, uh, we are a, a food insecure state and that's an important component um, as well. It's very important. and I. One of the things that the farm brings to people is the knowledge that there is a way to grow your food locally, nearby. It brings that local connection. And hopefully that alleviates some stress that we don't even realize we have. You know, we're right, Connecticut's right between New York and Boston. And we become kind of an island if there's ever a food shortage. And so, People need com the comfort that there are local farms producing. And with just a few changes in our habits of eating sustainably, looking for local produce, eating seasonally, there's so much that we can do in Connecticut to make sure that we have healthy food for everyone and people are getting it locally and that they would be more food security in our state. Mm -hmm. We just have a couple of minutes left. I know we're focusing on the 4-H program for children, but I know our farm, I believe you have a, a adult volunteer program. Can you tell us about that? We do. We have an adult volunteer program. We love our volunteers. Um, having a Being a nonprofit and having 120 acres to take care of, there's no way we could ever 
have enough staff on payroll to maintain the farm, take care of the animals, and have all of our great programs. So we're always looking for volunteers, and we take volunteers of any talent or anything that you may want to learn about more, we're happy to bring you as in as a volunteer and teach you. So if you're interested in our volunteer program, you can email us at info at ourfarm.org and we'll, we'll teach you. Um, we have adults coming out and um, getting eggs for us out of the chicken coop, uh, the, um, brushing donkeys, they're working in the gardens. They're learning from our master gardeners. We have some amazing UConn, University of Connecticut master gardeners at the farm that have years and years of experience. We now have a teaching kitchen. So we're looking forward to working with some volunteers and bringing the nutrition, the nutritional products from the farm into the kitchen, working with our youth and adults and learning more about that, that connection between eating healthy, and producing your own food. Erica Fern, again, is Executive Director of the Our Farm in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Thanks for sharing that email address. I have a feeling you're going you're gonna to hear from a lot of people, Erica. I hope so. I look forward to it. Thank you, Erica. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, a reminder, it's Connecticut Public Radio's fall fundraising campaign. Next week, we will be preempted to provide you special coverage from NPR for the Supreme Court nominee hearings before the Senate. But we want to remind you to support where we live and the wide variety of conversations and programs you hear on this radio station. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more.